Welcome back to the Clerkship Success Series, part of the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast, where we discuss clinical approaches to some common neurologic complaints. Today, we'll be talking about weakness, and Charlie and I are very excited to welcome back Dr. Jeff Dewey, a specialist in neuromuscular disorders at Yale. Thanks for joining us again, Dr. Dewey. I'm happy to be back. This is a very ambitious topic, but I think we're going to nail it. Yes, I think so too. Charlie, do you want to dive into some of our learning objectives for today? Sounds good, Sonia. So learning objectives for this episode. First, we want to understand the anatomy of movements, or voluntary movements specifically. And then we'll discuss the examination of a patient with weakness, including looking for upper and lower motor neuron signs. And lastly, we want to understand some of the common central and peripheral etiologies of weakness, as well as their temporal and distribution patterns. Perfect. So let's dive right into the anatomy, which will be very helpful later on as we discuss localizing lesions and thinking about diseases at different anatomical sites. So Dr. Dewey, from top to bottom or or central to peripheral, what are the different anatomical structures involved in voluntary movement? So I like that you asked from central to peripheral, and my advice to everyone would be to have a framework that you use as you go through localization. And this is a perfect one. Think of central structures and work your way out to peripheral structures. So uh, really we're talking about the entire neuraxis here, starting with the cortex. And we classically think of the motor cortex or the homunculus that we learn from our neuroanatomy books. Uh, And then uh, that's really where the cell bodies live that determine voluntary movement as the first order neurons. And then you progress uh, as white matter through the posterior limb of the internal capsule then through the cerebral peduncles in the midbrain, through the basis pontus in the pons, and then the medullary pyramids, where some of these fibers decussate classically, and then down through the spinal cord uh, to then the next layer of the alpha motor neurons, and then going out peripherally uh, through the nerve roots into the muscles themselves and the neuromuscular junction. So quite, quite a few steps in that process, and it's a very, very long anatomical tract within that sort of cortical spinal tract. So from the cortex down to the alpha motor neuron, uh, there's really actually two cortical spinal tracts. There's the lateral cortical spinal tract. And this is what we're classically taught is the cortical spinal tract. And that's the majority of fibers traveling through this. So these are the fibers that travel most of the way ipsilateral to the innervated muscles. So they start in the contralateral cortex and then decussate in the medulla at the medullary pyramids. And then from that point on, travel ipsilaterally to the muscle that they're going to control. They terminate at the ventral horn where the alpha motor neuron cell body is. And then that becomes the peripheral nerve once it leaves the spinal cord. There is also a less talked about anterior cortical spinal tract. And that travels mostly contralateral to the innervated muscle. So it does not decussate in the pyramids. It actually decussates at the spinal level of the muscle it's going to innervate. And because it's giving off fibers on the way down, it gradually tapers and terminates uh, in the the mid thoracic cord region. So the lateral cortical spinal tract is responsible for limb movement. The anterior cortical spinal tract is responsible for truncal or neck or axial muscles. Uh, And so I think that's why it's often less talked about because we're really generally talking about arm and leg paresis. Uh, But it's good to have this uh, distinction in your mind. Uh, And it's, it's good to understand that Uh, This is sort of an alternate pathway for muscle signal to travel in some respects. Uh, And then once we've reached sort of the the terminus of this cortical spinal tract, then we're talking about the lower motor neurons, which begin technically in the the anterior horn of the spinal cord or the ventral horn, 
with the alpha motor neuron cell body and then become peripheral nerves once they've joined uh, with the sensory roots and exit the spinal canal. And then lastly, once we've traveled down that whole way, we reach the neuromuscular junction where there's a electrochemical electro electrical synapse. Uh, so it's really a chemical synapse that transmits the electrical activity of the lower motor neuron into electrical activity at the muscle itself. And then of course the muscle is the final effector of any movement. Perfect. So as you alluded to, we can really have lesions causing weakness at any level along that pathway in the cortical spinal tract to the neuromuscular junction to the actual peripheral muscle. Um, and you also discussed some of the distinctions between uh, control of limb movement versus axial movement. Uh, while we're discussing anatomy, let's also briefly review the cortical bulbar tract, though I, I imagine we'll primarily be focusing on, on more limb and, and perhaps some, some axial weakness during this episode, but it's, it's worth reviewing uh, the, the facial weakness as well. Absolutely. And, and some of that pathway is really the same. So, uh, you know, the homunculus continues out into the lateral aspect of the cerebral cortex with the facial muscles or the muscles of voluntary facial movements. So the cortical bulbar tract really begins there. And we call it cortical bulbar because it, uh, it terminates in the brainstem or the bulbar region. So it begins with cells in the motor cortex, again, travels via white matter through the corona radiata, the posterior limb of the internal capsule, uh, then down again through the cerebral peduncles. Uh, and there's a little bit more variable decussation here, but in general, uh, these nerves will decussate at the level of the cranial nerve nucleus that they're going to innervate. And then from these motor cranial nerve nuclei, go on to innervate voluntary muscles, uh, mostly in the face, but then also in the neck with the SCMs and the trapezials. Great. So just to quickly summarize, our episode is going to be focusing on the corticospinal tract. And for that tract, there's really two neurons the first order neurons from the cortex all the way down to the interior uh, horn of the spinal cord, and then the secondary neuron from the spinal cord to the peripheral uh, muscles. Now that we have a discussion of the anatomy, Dr. Dewey, what would be your framework uh, for diagnosing weakness? I would encourage everybody to rely predominantly on their history and exam. The vast majority of cases can be zeroed in upon if not solved by history and exam. And diagnostic testing is really a way to confirm uh, or check yourself and we can take advantage of modern technology, but it is a supplement to what you do as the examiner in the room. And this is part of what makes neurology so great is you know, developing this art over the course of a lifetime. So I really put a strong emphasis on the history and exam. And really the goal is to determine where is the weakness, what else has come along with it, and then how did this progress over time? And once we have those, that pattern figured out in that time course, then we can think about the pathophysiology and disease ideologies that might cause the, the spectrum of symptoms that we're hearing about and seeing in our exam. Now, you said, so three things that I heard. One is where is the weakness? One is what comes along or other symptoms along with weakness? And lastly, kind of a temporal pattern. So can you elaborate a little bit on the where part, the distribution of weakness? What, are you, what do you mean by this? Yeah, there are many different ways you can sort of stratify distribution. And I think some axes to think along would be uh, symmetric versus asymmetric, uh, generalized or diffuse versus localized. And by localized, I mean in a single limb, in a single dermatome, in a single peripheral nerve. Uh, is it proximal versus distal, uh, hemibody versus parabody? So 
you know, along the sagittal plane would be considered hemibody, along the axial plane would be considered parabody, so like paraparasis in the legs, uh, or again, again, is it, a, is it one limb, two limbs, et cetera. So all different uh, spatial distributions uh, are things you should be thinking about as you try to determine what kind of pattern you're seeing here. And this is really about pattern recognition. Uh, and this helps you. So for instance, somebody who is diffusely weak everywhere, face, legs, trunk, arms, uh, it's unlikely to be explained by a signal lesion high in that neuraxis in the brain or the spinal cord. And so you want to think about what structures are distributed more diffusely throughout the body, the nerves, the muscles, the neuromuscular junction. Uh, in terms of proximal versus distal, as a general heuristic, uh, if you're thinking about peripheral causes, we like to say that proximal weakness tends to be due to a myopathy, distal weakness tends to be due to a neuropathy. And I, I use that term general heuristic uh, very carefully. A lot of the things we're gonna talk about today are general heuristics and there are exceptions to almost everything we're going to say, but as you learn neurology, especially early in your career, these heuristics are very helpful. And then you pick up over time, what are the exceptions? What are the gotchas that I need to remember? Uh, but that's a good one to keep in mind. And, and you know, of course, lesions in different places of the brain and spinal cord can cause distal and proximal processes as well, but these tend to be asymmetric and not symmetric. So again, we're combining sort of two heuristics here. Uh, in terms of other things that can uh, cause asymmetric, uh, looking into sort of single limb problems. So you can get a single limb or even a, an arm greater than leg or a total unilateral hemiparesis from a stroke. You can get a, a single limb problem from a radiculopathy. Uh, certain peripheral neuropathies can be asymmetric. Myopathies can can be asymmetric. So you can see there are a lot of exceptions here. And one other pattern that often gets overlooked but important is important to remember is the multifocal pattern. And by that, I mean diffuse but asymmetric. And so things like that can cause that would be like mononeuritis multiplex. Uh, when these processes are very advanced, they can actually look symmetric. So again, this is where time matters. And then of course, there's the paraparesis, which is generally a bilateral lower extremity paraparesis. And this comes from uh, cord syndromes, uh, you know, transverse myelitis, uh, cord compression or traumatic injury, uh, or cauda equina syndrome, and then certain phases of peripheral nerve disorders that tend to have a length-dependent pattern, such as Guillain-Barré syndrome, can present as a paraparesis that will later develop into a more diffuse plegia. Uh, so really important to ask about where it is and also how it happened, when it happened, and how it progressed. And so this is the temporal pattern of dysfunction. For instance, was the onset paroxysmal uh, or sudden? And you can think about things like a stroke or other ischemic damage, trauma, certainly. Uh, seizures can cause sudden onset weakness, particularly post-ictal. Uh, some demyelinating lesions or inflammatory lesions, patients experience as paroxysmal, even though if you watched them pathologically, they would be developing rapidly. On the, probably the next order of suddenness would be rapid progression. And I'm talking over hours to days. Uh, here you want to think about inflammatory or autoimmune diseases, including demyelination, uh, including inflammatory neuropathies, neuromuscular junction disorders. Think also about infectious processes, a rapidly growing neoplasm or a perineoplastic process, some toxic metabolic processes, uh, particularly toxic processes can do this. And then there's the, the slower end of the spectrum with gradually progressive weakness. And again, Here's some overlap here with toxic metabolic and inflammatory processes, also with more slowly growing neoplasms and then degenerative or idiopathic processes. Excellent. And in the rest of the episode, 
we'll, we'll go over some of the common neuromuscular disorders and discuss them in the context of the distribution and the time frame, and also that third aspect, the associated symptoms. So I think a lot of what we've been talking about so far um, is key information that we can really gauge from the history, a lot of this distribution and, and the time pattern. Uh, but there are certainly examination findings that can help us with the localization as well. So first, could you just walk us through the examination of a patient who comes in with weakness? Yeah, and I'll focus on mainly the, mainly the motor exam, but some other relevant things too, assuming that you would do a thorough neurologic exam, including mental status and all of these things. But let's say this is a complaint of you know, weakness, as you said, and so we'll focus on this part of the exam. So the first thing is always observation. It's easy to jump into confrontational strength testing, uh, but that's actually only a portion of the motor exam. So really developing the patients, as in your own patients, to observe the patient for a period of time. I like to look at, uh, especially if there's a particular limb involved, really observe the, the limb for 30 to 60 seconds undisturbed. And what you're looking for is, are there any obvious areas of atrophy? Uh, are there any fasciculations or other adventitious movements? Uh, and really watching over time is key. If you just glance at a limb, you may miss some of these because they're intermittent or slow. And this is where you want to be sure you can see the muscles involved. So it's important to gown the patient and drape appropriately, but expose the muscles you need to, at least for the period of observation. Once you've observed, you want to palpate the muscles, feel for abnormal bulk, feel for fatty atrophy or fatty replacement check the tone of the patient. And you want to feel tone in everyone because you need to feel a few thousand normal tones before you're going to pick up those subtly abnormal tones. And you're feeling for, is the patient hypotonic or flaccid? Is the patient hypertonic? And if they're hypertonic, is it a lead pipe rigidity? So it's there throughout all ranges of motion. Is, it, is there a superimposed tremor to make it feel cogwheeling? Is it spastic where it's velocity dependent? And so it's really important to, to feel with some curiosity and test across various joints. Once you've done those things, you can go on to the classic confrontational strength testing. Just remember that strength is not just uh, intact or not. It's really rated on a scale of zero to five. And this, this scale is called the manual motor test. It was developed actually uh, during World War II, uh, and I, I suppose partly during previous wars, but really codified during World War II because of all the peripheral nerve injuries that patients were suffering. Uh, and it's been written down and passed forward in a book called Aids to the Examination of the Peripheral Nervous System, which was initially published by the British National Health System, and now has been taken over by the journal Brain. Uh, but it is the sort of gold standard for how to position the patient, both their limb and also your hands, as you test each of these muscles and then, of course, the rating scale of zero to five, zero being nothing, five being full, three being anti-gravity with some gradation in there as well. And remember that you can test patients uh, out of the plane of gravity too. So if they can't move their limb anti-gravity, can they slide it across their body or move it across the bed? Can they just get a twitch out of the muscle? So these are all things you want to look for as you test systematically the muscles of the arms, legs, and trunk. And also be mindful of factors that can complicate confrontational testing. Pain is probably the most common one. Uh, and you see this not only from neuropathic pain, uh, but patients with orthopedic injuries. Uh, I often see, we'll see a weak shoulder because of a rotator cuff problem or osteoarthritis. Uh, also patients can be fatigable from a pathologic process that may or may not be neurologic, could be neuromuscular junction, could also be something else. Uh, and of course there are issues with effort, uh, 
and emotional overlay. There can be uh, psychogenic weakness. So all things to consider as you're obtaining these results. And this is why you want to have a hypothesis as you go into strength testing. So you can be prepared to deal with both the expected and unexpected findings. So really, again, uh, observation, palpation, and strength testing are sort of the core of the muscle exam. But other things that are supplementary, uh, the sensory exam, obviously, you know, sensory structures are adjacent to motor structures in many places along the neuroaxis. Uh, and remember that the Romberg test is a sensory test and a very, a very delicate or sensitive test for proprioceptive deficits. The reflex exam is one of my favorites because it's, it's quite objective and you get a look at both the sensory afferent and the motor efferent through the spinal cord. So it gives you a good look at the sensory motor arc. Remember to include pathologic reflexes, uh, the plantar reflex, the Hoffman sign, uh, as well as hyperreflexia in areas where you shouldn't have reflexes. Uh, for instance, the, the pectoral muscles, the jaw jerk test. These are all adjuncts to your motor exam that can tell you something about uh, sensory and or motor stru structures. Uh, and of course, include gait, include cerebellar testing. These are all important adjuncts as well. And as we're talking about reflexes, I think that transitions us very nicely into this distinction of upper versus lower motor neuron problems and, and the signs that go along with these, which is a very helpful distinction that can be made on the physical exam. So what are the features of each? So an upper motor neuron injury classically causes hypertonicity or spasticity, hyperreflexia, no muscle atrophy, and generally some pathologic reflex, for instance, a positive Babinski sign or a Hoffman sign. Lower motor neuron injury typically causes low tone or flaccidity, hyporeflexia. There is muscle atrophy and you see abnormal movements in the form of muscle fasciculations, which again, require careful observation sometimes to pick out. You should not have positive pathologic reflexes such as the Babinski or Hoffman in a lower motor neuron injury. Perfect. So just to recap, you know, the, the motor exam can be very nuanced, but generally you want to make sure that you're doing your, your observation, your palpation, and your strength testing, um, as well as things like sensory testing and especially checking for reflexes. And along the way, you can start to make the distinction of whether you think the pathophysiology might be related to an upper motor neuron lesion or a lower motor neuron lesion. Absolutely. Moving on from our previous section, we'll next talk about actual disorders that can result in weakness. And we've organized this section according to anatomy, going from central to peripheral causes of weakness. And for each one of these diseases, we'll discuss that general framework, you know, temporal, the temporal pattern, the uh, localization of the weakness and also associated symptoms. So the six divisions that we have, anatomical divisions for weakness are number one, brain and cortical disorders. Number two, spinal cord disorders and radiculopathies. Number three, motor neuron disorders. Number four, peripheral nerve disorders. Number five, neuromuscular junction disorders. And number six, myopathies. Our first one is on the brain or the cortex, you know, including the subcortical areas and the brainstem. You know, disorders in this area can give us weakness. So Dr. Dewey, what are some of the common diagnoses what types of lesions students should know? So I think uh, there are a few that will be very high yield. Uh, in a particular uh, stroke, either ischemic or hemorrhagic, uh, demyelinating disease, uh, such as multiple sclerosis, uh, tumors or other mass lesions, such as abscesses, seizures, and then other infections 
including both abscesses, but also uh, encephalitides. And so for these disorders, let's talk about number one, the distribution, and number two, the temporal pattern, and number three, any other associated symptoms. An intracranial lesion causing weakness, typically, if we're talking particularly about the limbs, is going to cause a contralateral uh, hemiparesis or, or plegia. The, the time course then helps you distinguish from some of these because the localization typically is on you know, the other side prior to the pyramidal decussation. So things that are the most acute, I mean, stroke is probably uh, the most paroxysmal and this will classically cause a unilateral hemiparesis. Depending on where it is, it can be more prominent in an arm or the face or the leg, or it can be equal across the three if it's closer to uh, some of the lower structures inside the cranium. Seizure or infection can cause uh, really focal neuroscience anywhere, depending on where the, the pathology is. Uh, but that can also, that can include weakness, particularly postictal weakness as well. So after a seizure, the classic example being a Todd's paralysis, uh, in which a patient is focally weak for up to 24 hours after a focal seizure. Weakness can be due to uh, sudden or rapid demyelination, such as in multiple sclerosis or PML. It tends to be gradual and progressive, uh, can progress very rapidly, uh, even over hours, and some patients experience it as a paroxysmal onset or sudden onset of symptoms. And depending on where it is, can involve uh, one limb, multiple limbs, uh, cranial nerve territories, sensory and or motor, a very, very diffuse range of presentations, uh, particularly because the spinal cord is at risk. Uh, you often see these involving the trunk or the legs as well. All right, so you, we've talked about four different disorders already, and most of these, given that it's a problem in the central nervous system, above the pyramidal decussation, we'll see contralateral symptoms, and these four are stroke, seizure, infection, and demyelination. Now, of these four, probably stroke is probably one of the biggest categories uh, from an epidemiologic standpoint. So let's review some of the vascular distributions that we should be thinking about when we have weakness due to stroke. Yeah, I think this is a very helpful way to approach a stroke. And if you, if you present a patient as having a stroke uh, on any stroke service, they're going to ask you about the vascular distribution uh, right after you're done presenting. So you might as well think about it ahead of time. So uh, just remember, I think in particular, the, the major arteries that uh, supply blood to the motor structures we talked about initially. So classically, the ACA or the anterior cerebral artery uh, in, provides blood flow to the, the portion of the homunculus that really innervates uh, the lower extremities. The MCA provides blood to the outer surface of the brain where the homunculus for the upper extremities and the face is. You can also have perforating or penetrating vessel infarcts. Uh, one classic example would be a lenticulostriate infarct affecting the internal capsule which can cause a much more dense hemiplegia throughout the entire half of the body as the arm and leg uh, fibers coalesce in the internal capsule. These can even cause a classically pure motor stroke, uh, which is one of the lacunar syndromes that we often see, lacun being a small stroke deep in the brain. For large vessel strokes, they often will involve some other modality just because of the diffuse area that the artery covers in terms of vascular supply. So you can look for other cortical signs, for instance, uh, sensory loss, aphasia, some of the other uh, higher order sensory functions or cognitive functions. Whereas the lacunar strokes, these are often absent because they're only hitting a very focal area of subcortical white matter. 
You can also see a number of different brainstem strokes. And I think this is probably a podcast all by itself, but you do want to look for cranial nerve deficits. Great. So just a quick summary. When students think of lower limb weakness due to a cortical stroke, mostly we're thinking of the ACA territory. And for upper limbs, you're thinking of the MCA territory. And of course, sometimes you have lacuna strokes, especially ones that hit the internal capsule, you might have both upper and lower limbs uh, showing signs of weakness. And associated symptoms, you'd be looking for cortical signs, if it's a large vessel stroke. Um, otherwise, you could also be looking for any cranial nerve deficits um, that could come with a stroke. Let's move on to the spinal cord. And we'll, we'll take the same approach. What are some of the diagnoses that we should be thinking of, particularly if you suspect that the weakness is due to a spinal cord lesion? So I would think about a few things, uh, trauma or compression uh, from osteoarthritis or an acute traumatic injury. Uh, a tumor also can cause mass effect or be intramedullary uh, in the cord. Transverse myelitis or other demyelinating lesions, such as something on the neuromyelitis optica spectrum. Uh, and of course, ischemia can happen in the spinal cord. Uh, and in particular, the anterior spinal artery territory uh, is very prone to ischemic insult uh, in certain cases. And let's take some time to talk about the distribution of weakness that you can see with spinal cord lesions, because these do often have some uh, interesting and very specific patterns, uh, which you know not only show up clinically, but for students are very commonly seen on exams as well. Yeah, and it's worth knowing your, your cross-sectional anatomy of the spinal cord, which fortunately only varies a little bit throughout the whole length of the cord. So you kind of just have to have a general idea. But uh, I would think about it in a few different potential territories. So we talk sometimes about central cord syndromes. I think one classic example being syringomyelia. And these are patients who develop uh, a suspended sensory level or sometimes described as a cape-like distribution when it takes place in the cervical cord. As you lose the fibers that are decussating across the right in front of the central canal, uh, carrying pain and temperature fibers. These patients are left less often weak until the disease is quite advanced. You can see anterior cord syndromes. And if you think about the structures there, this is where the anterior horn cells are. This is where the anterior corticospinal tracts are. And so you'll often see weakness and pain and temperature deficits below the level of injury. Because there is really one artery feeding the whole anterior cord, you often see bilateral changes in ischemic anterior cord syndromes. Similarly, mass effect on the anterior cord tends to affect both sides equally, especially if it's a central process, although sometimes these do happen asymmetrically. And then one other classic thing we often talk about is the brown sequard or hemisection syndrome, which is you know, very, very difficult to do traumatically, but can happen uh, in cases of demyelination. And this is where you see patients who have uh, sort of a crossed sensory exam or a cross neurologic exam. In other words, it's not all on one side of the body. So ipsilateral to the lesion, you'll typically see uh, weakness with lower motor neuron signs at the level of the lesion, and then upper motor neuron signs below the level of the lesion because of damage to the anterior horn cells and the cortical spinal tract respectively. You'll see ipsilateral vibration and proprioception loss due to dorsal column damage on that side. And you'll see contralateral pain and temperature loss below the level of the lesion uh, because these, uh, are trying to have decussated prior to the level of this lesion. Perfect. And what about some of the temporal patterns that we see with these lesions, uh, ones that you talked about, including trauma, compressive lesions like tumors, ischemia? So the, the traumatic events are usually the easiest because there was some event that happened and after that event, things changed. 
Uh, ischemic events also tend to be fairly sudden. Spinal cord ischemia can appear to be a little bit progressive, uh, but typically there's at least a sudden onset of some deficit, uh, generally with some pain as well. Transverse myelitis can be sudden, can be rapidly progressive over hours or days. The things that are a little bit slower are things like uh, slowly growing tumors, compressive lesions from you know, severe degenerative disease uh, or you know, gradual disc herniations, things like that. And while we're discussing the spinal cord, let's also talk about caudoquina and conus medullaris, which are two syndromes that can be somewhat uh, difficult to distinguish between, um, but are very important. Yes, and they're very important because they really are neurologic emergencies. They can lead to permanent uh, paralysis if they're not treated uh, quickly. And generally, but not always due to compressive lesions. You can, particularly conus medullaris syndrome, you can see from uh, inflammatory lesions as well. So remember that the conus medullaris is the parenchymal tip of the spinal cord. Typically, uh, the spinal cord terminates around L1 or L2 in adults. And so it's really the sacral cord cell bodies and then the conus, or sorry, the cauda are the nerve roots coming off of the conus that really travel through the spinal canal in the mid and lower lumbar and sacral levels as they exit at their various levels. Compression in either space can cause a very similar phenomenon, which is uh, usually it's painful, but there's fairly rapid onset of uh, paraparesis or paraplegia in the legs, as well as bowel and bladder signs. Oftentimes you'll see what's called saddle anesthesia, so numbness in the sacral nerve distribution, uh, and that's including uh, uh, around uh, the genitals and the anus. And you also want to check for rectal tone in these cases for the same reason. This can be uh, one of the earliest areas where you'll see loss of strength in patients with a cauda or a conus syndrome. But if you don't think about it, you're not going to check for it. And of course, if you suspect this, you need rapid imaging and often surgical treatment. And so it's important to have uh, a very uh, low threshold of concern in suspected cases. Mm -hmm. And now another condition which students should know about is radiculopathy. And this is outside of the cord itself, but is very much worth talking about here as we talk about other spinal disorders. Yeah, these are, and these are very common epidemiologically, you know, due to mainly due to gen degenerative uh, disc disease in generally the cervical and lumbar cord. So radiculopathy is really a pinching of the nerve root as it exits the cord. Remember that the, the motor and sensory rami exit sort of separately and then come very rapidly together even before you've exited the, the spinal canal to form the nerve root at each spinal level. So when one of those gets pinched, you often get a focal paresis in the muscles that are innervated by that root, and we call that a myotome. So some part of your limb that's uh, anatomically explainable by this root will be paretic, if not plegic. Usually you have some corresponding sensory involvement in that territory, which we call the dermatome, and these don't always overlap. Uh, and then uh, oftentimes you have some pain as well, especially if it's a sudden disc herniation, simply because you're traumatizing the nerve in these cases. So it's important to know and think about your dermatomes and myotomes. And there's a good map of them inside the cover of every neurology textbook and every pocket card set because they're so critical. But again, remember that uh, commonly these are in the mid-cervical levels, C5 to C7, and lower lumbar levels, just speaking as a general uh, epidemiology point. Great. So to recap, we've talked about quite a few different types of lesions that can affect the spinal cord, uh, including 
trauma, compressive lesions. And here we also talked about the conus medullaris and caudoquinus syndromes, which are neuroemergencies. Uh, we've talked about spinal ischemia and we've talked about transverse myelitis. And then outside of the cord itself is radiculopathy. Um, and here it's very important to, to pay attention to your, your dermatomes and your myotomes and to have that on your, your differential. So now on our journey from central to peripheral, we've reached the motor neuron disorders. And Dr. Dewey, just now earlier on, you made a distinction that motor neuron disorders are different from peripheral nerve disorders because in the peripheral nerve, you have both motor neuron fibers and sensory neuron fibers. So let's focus first on just the motor neuron disorders. So what are the types of disorders that medical students should know about? So the, the classic motor neuron disorder or motor neuron disease is ALS, but there's really a number of them. So ALS is one. Spinal muscular atrophy is another one. There are some ALS subtypes, uh, progressive mus muscular atrophy, uh, progressive bulbar palsy, primary lateral sclerosis, uh, but they all have in common that they are selective for disease of the motor neuron. Typically what we say, what we mean when we say that is the alpha motor neuron. Now these diseases can run uh, up and down the neural axis and actually in the advanced cases of ALS, you'll see degeneration all the way up to the motor cortex. Uh, however, because the sort of thing in common is that they're, they're affecting the, the alpha motor neuron, uh, we t I tend to think of them as in between the spinal cord and the peripheral nerves. Use that heuristic if you like. So let's talk about just some of the more common ones. I think, like I said, ALS is probably the most common of a fairly rare disease class. Uh, and it's really a spectrum of things, but classically we think of ALS as a combined upper and lower motor neuron syndrome. And actually that's how it's diagnosed is by observing combined upper and motor, lower motor neuron features throughout the body in a clinical setting. Uh, there are no sensory findings in ALS, and that's one thing that you should always remember. If you see sensory findings, you wanna think about a different process. It's slowly progressive and a little bit mystifying to diagnose in some cases, and often it takes up to a year to diagnose a patient from symptom onset simply because it can mimic so many different things. But it is gradually progressive, at the moment, there is no cure. There are new treatments being approved all the time and together they can slow the course of the disease. So diagnosis does matter, but uh, it does often take time to diagnose. And then it's a matter of uh, treatment and symptom management uh, over the order of years. Spinal muscular atrophies are a progressive congenital disorder of motor neurons. They typically have lower motor neuron findings, uh, no sensory involvement. And again, this is a group of disorders and really a spectrum along age of onset, uh, anywhere from onset uh, prenatally to the point that it's not compatible with life, all the way to adult onset cases, which are rare but do exist. The vast majority are seen in infancy and diagnosed in infancy and childhood. Uh, and it's important to diagnose these genetically because there is an FDA-approved antisense oligonucleotide treatment that's quite effective. And of course, there's other care that comes along with this, managing the complications of motor neuron weakness. Great, quick summary again. So we have for motor neuron disorders, the main two being ALS and SMA, spinal muscular atrophies. Both of these are kind of groups of diseases that have different spectrum of presentations. And you did already talk about the distribution and temporal patterns for both of these. Uh, for ALS, you have upper and lower motor neuron signs and uh, you have no associated sensory findings and the progression is usually uh, over a year. Whereas for spinal muscular atrophies, these are mostly lower, lower motor neuron findings 
once again, no sensory involvement, and most cases are seen in infancy, but some may present uh, as an adult. Great. Let's move on now to lesions of the peripheral nerves. Uh, what are the main disease entities that we should keep in mind? So the, the classic in this case is what we would call a neuropathy. And uh, neuropathy is such a general term. It has so many subsets. I mean, this, people spend their entire careers on subsets of subsets of neuropathy. So we'll try to give a general overview. But generally, when we say neuropathy, we mean polyneuropathy. So a, a diffuse neuropathic process affecting the peripheral nerves. Now you can have mononeuropathies. As I mentioned earlier, you can have multifocal mononeuropathies or mononeuropathy multiplex. Uh, so there are various ways in which this can present. Uh, when we say polyneuropathy, usually we're talking about things secondary to systemic disease or toxic metabolic disease, uh, inflammatory disease like Guillain-Barre syndrome or its sort of chronic cousin CIDP. Uh, you could have congenital polyneuropathies. Uh, there's again, a very wide spectrum. And then with mononeuropathies, we're often talking about most commonly compression or entrapment neuropathy, but also you can get a traumatic disease and then sort of focal inflammatory or ischemic disease affecting one nerve at a time. But again, the vast majority will be compression or entrapment disease, such as carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> and as you were alluding to, the, the topic of neuropathy is very expansive, uh, but what are some general patterns of distribution and timing that we should be keeping in mind? So uh, you can have a variety of distributions and often it, it looks a little different for a poly versus a mononeuropathy. Uh, and that includes the temporal progression of these as well. Uh, again, for the classic case of polyneuropathy, uh, the distribution heuristic that I use is, is what's often called a stocking glove distribution. So it's a distal worse than proximal symptom complex. And oftentimes it begins really in the toes and progresses up the feet a little bit and then begins involving the fingertips in a, in a way that really makes you think that the farthest part of the nerve is being affected first. And by that, I mean the distance from the, the cell body. Uh, for disorders that are demyelinating, they often affect the nerve both proximally and distally. And sometimes in a way that's a little bit confusing where you'll see symptoms a little bit more proximally first. Other times they follow uh, what's sometimes called an ascending pattern which again really just means a classic length dependent pattern. But pathophysiologically, really in both cases, the entire nerve is actually being affected along the same time. So let me give you some examples. Uh, a classic sort of acute progressive ascending polyneuropathy would be Guillain-Barre syndrome. And again, that's a spectrum of diseases, but patients will describe symptoms that began in the feet with weakness and or sensory change and quickly evolved over days to involve the entire extremities. What's interesting is if you look at these patients, probably the first thing to go is their deep tendon reflexes, but they don't notice that you know, symptom, symptomatically. But when you test them, even if their weakness is only in the distal legs, their reflexes are gone everywhere. So that tells you a little something about how there's proximal involvement as well. And remember, this is an immune-mediated syndrome uh, and quite treatable uh, with, with uh, good recovery time in most cases. CIDP is a more subacute version of GBS. And uh, one rule that's kind of used is that GBS tends to peak within four weeks uh, and oftentimes two weeks. CIDP tends to progress over eight weeks or longer. And then in between, there's a subacute sort of mixed neuropathy. Uh, but because it's slowly progressive, it can appear a little bit more asymmetric. Sometimes patients are a little more proximal than distal. It's a little more variable uh, in its course. But at their core, these are both immune-mediated demyelinating neuropathies. 
More commonly, even though we like to learn about those as neurologists, more commonly you're going to see neuropathy due to systemic disease and really uh, diabetes probably being the numbers one and two and maybe three of, of the systemic toxic metabolic causes. This tends to cause that classic stocking glove, sensory, and eventually motor uh, changes uh, in, the, in the limbs. And then you can have these focal mount neuropathies that really the distribution is determined by which nerve is involved and where along that nerve's course it's involved. The prototype would be carpal tunnel, which is really one of the most common neurologic problems in the world. And that's entrapment of the median nerve at the wrist in the carpal tunnel, leading to pain, numbness, and eventually weakness uh, distal to that in sort of what would you consider the lateral hand, the anatomic position. Ulnar neuropathy is also fairly common at the elbow usually is where it's most vulnerable. And so that can lead to changes in the anatomically medial portion of the hand. So the ring finger and pinky uh, and numbness and pain in that distribution. Great. So again, neuropathy is a, a massive topic uh, and impossible to, to fill in all of the details here. But one general way to start to organize your thinking about neuropathy is thinking about polyneuropathies versus mononeuropathies with uh, compression or entrapment uh, or trauma being common causes of mononeuropathies. And then your polyneuropathies, you're really thinking about systemic causes like toxic metabolic states or inflammatory conditions. And so these can be systemic diseases like diabetes or neurologists. We love to think about uh, Guillain-Barre and, and CIDP. And the distinction there really is, is the timing. Um, and so again, the temporal pattern, the, the rapidity of the onset uh, can really help you distinguish between those two. Perfect. All right. And now for the neuromuscular junction disorders. So as medical students, we learn the big two, which are myasthenia gravis and Lambert-Eaton. I think for this podcast, we can focus on those. And if you'd like to, Dr. Dewey, you can mention some of the other ones. Um, but let's talk about these, these, these two diseases, myasthenia and Lambert-Eaton, and what are their differences? Yeah, I think those probably are the big two, uh, certainly to know about uh, early in your learning career. I think the only other one I'll throw in there, which is the uh, most common iatrogenic uh, neuromuscular junction disorder, and that's botulinum poisoning, which we give to our patients all the time in our Botox injection clinic. Um, but probably more commonly tested for you in terms of infantile botulism, which is outside of my field of expertise a little bit. So let's talk about uh, myasthenia and LEMS. I think those are two good ones to know. So in general, myasthenia is much more common, again, still being a relatively rare disease, uh, but compared to Lambert-Eaton syndrome, it's far more common. Both of these are antibody-mediated syndromes. Uh, both of these affect the neuromuscular junction. Myasthenia is an antibody against some component of uh, acetylcholine transmission, most commonly the acetylcholine receptor, although there are other structures involved in the acetylcholine receptor that can be involved. Versus in Lambert-Eaton syndrome, it's a presynaptic. So if myasthenia is postsynaptic, Lambert-Eaton is a presynaptic antibody target, and that's the voltage-gated calcium channel in the axon terminal. Great. And as for, we want to talk about distribution and timing once again. So let's first talk about distribution of the weakness. These can be tricky, uh, and myasthenia is a great imitator, but there are really two general distributions. There's ocular myasthenia, which involves muscles of the eyelid or extraocular muscles themselves, or generalized myasthenia. And you can transition from ocular to generalized uh, within the first couple of years of illness. So they're not mutually exclusive. Generalized being any voluntary muscle uh, in the body that, that uh, 
as a typical ACHR receptor can be affected. Uh, when you're talking about that, the things you really worry about are the bulbar and respiratory muscles. So our patient's gonna develop problems breathing or swallowing, but in all cases, the typical pattern is one of fatigable weakness. And so sometimes you'll see patients who are okay in the morning, uh, but as they use these muscles throughout the day, uh, they tend to become more and more fatigued. And even within certain tasks, you can see fatigability. For instance, reading may bring on extraocular fatigue or chewing or talking a lot may bring on bulbar fatigue. Uh, you can treat these both symptomatically with acetylcholinesterase inhibitors uh, or with disease-modifying immune therapy. And you also want to rule out, uh, in these cases, you want to think about, does the patient have a thymoma, which can uh, be associated with the production of these antibodies. And of course, in crises, this is where it's really important to remember your ABCs. These patients can go very quickly from having somewhat worse myasthenic symptoms to being in respiratory failure from diaphragmatic weakness. And so you want to have a very low threshold for intubation in myasthenic crises. Lambert-Eaton typically involves uh, generally more proximal muscles. There's not an ocular Lambert-Eaton form. It's a generalized syndrome, but it can come with autonomic symptoms. And that is an important distinguishing factor from myasthenia. It tends to actually improve with muscle use. And the physiology of that is, is fascinating, but outside the scope of this podcast, just as a heuristic, remember that these patients will get stronger with repeated rapid contraction. Uh, and it's also important to remember that at least 50% of these cases are associated with some form of cancer, most often small cell lung cancer. So a thorough cancer screen is very important in patients in whom you discover this antibody. That's excellent because you've also discussed some of the temporal patterns of these disorders. Namely, that tends to be variable and fluctuating. And for myasthenia, it typically worsens in the evening and its uh, fatigability. So it, I guess it appears both on the boards and also on the wards. You can see this within minutes at the bedside. So all you have to do is, is test the muscle in a sustained way. Often what we'll have the patient do is look up for 60 seconds or look to the side for 60 seconds and they can develop ptosis or diplopia right in front of you. Similarly, if you, if you push on the neck muscles or the shoulder abductors or hip flexors, you'll notice a decrement in weakness even over five or 10 impulses. It's always a very weird feeling to arm wrestle with your patients, but <laughs> this is one of those instances. They pay us to do, to do it. it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so wrapping up on the neuromuscular junction disorders, we have myasthenia. We're looking at uh, postsynaptic receptor antibodies. Um, we're looking at fatigability and we're looking at an ocular muscle weakness as one of its hallmark kind of presentations. And for Lambert-Eaton, we're thinking of presynaptic uh, antibodies uh, against calcium channels. And we're thinking of autonomic symptoms. And we're thinking that of improvement with muscle use, unlike myasthenia. Yes, we've arrived at the final stop on the motor pathway, uh, which is the muscle. So let's talk about myopathies. And there are a number of things that can cause myopathy. But what are some of the common etiologies that students should remember? I think you should absolutely remember things like inflammatory disease, and in particular, conditions like dermatomyositis or polymyositis, which is really a, a spectrum of inflammatory muscle diseases. Uh, it's important also to remember that there are a number of drug-induced myopathies. Probably the most common ones are related to steroids, statin use. Uh, there are toxic myopathies related to alcohol, uh, infectious myopathies. Uh, one that, that I think uh, is prevalent to remember is that HIV can cause a myopathy, but also some antivirals, especially earlier 
Antiretrovirals can cause myopathy as well. And so that kind of falls into the medication category. Uh, but there are other viral myopathies. Uh, systemic diseases, particularly rheumatologic disease, can be associated with myopathy. And then, of course, there are a number of congenital myopathies, the whole family of muscular dystrophies, uh, metabolic myopathies, mitochondrial myopathies. So again, this is an extremely dense uh, topic. But in terms of the most common ones you'll see, I would think about inflammatory and drug toxic or systemic disease induced myopathies first. So with those specific etiologies in mind, what are some of the distributional and temporal patterns that we should be looking for? So the inflammatory myopathies are generally fairly gradual in onset, both polymyositis and dermatomyositis. And uh, it's really, uh, when I say gradual, I mean weeks to months uh, and often very subtle in the beginning. Typically, patients will complain of symmetric uh, proximal greater than distal weakness. And this is where a good history is important because I like to ask a lot of functional questions. You're telling me your, your legs are weak. What's hard for you to do? And things you want to listen for are problems standing up from a chair, uh, particularly without having to push off the chair arms, uh, climbing up or down stairs, getting up off the floor, things that involve the limb girdle muscles or those proximal big muscles uh, you'll often see deficiencies in early. The equivalence in the arm might be reaching up into cabinets, combing one's hair, brushing teeth. You know, in more advanced ages, I've had patients tell me they have to rest their arm on the table in order to, to get their hand up to their mouth to brush their teeth or shave. Uh, and then for dermatomyositis, uh, dermato is your clue. You want to look for skin changes. The classic ones are the heliotrope or this sort of violet rash around the eyes. You can also see a shawl-like rash or the shawl sign, which is a rash around the neck and the back of the shoulders, the front of the chest as if someone was wearing a shawl over that territory. Uh, and then in more advanced diseases, you can see uh, skin changes in the hands uh, and calcifications over the joints. So a classic testable, but also very clinically relevant uh, sign. For drug and toxin-induced myopathies, they're often more generalized uh, and oftentimes even slower than the inflammatory diseases. Patients are on these medications uh, or offending agents for some time. Uh, and again, think about are the, is the patient on corticosteroids or statins for an extended period? And of course, of the toxic uh, myopathies, alcohol is probably the most common. Inherited myopathies, again, are very broad. I think the classic ones to remember are the muscular dystrophies, in particular Duchenne's muscular dystrophy uh, for those just getting into uh, learning neurology. And this is where a family history and uh, a genotype uh, or, or a genetic tree or pedigree is very important. And really, uh, remember that some of these diseases are fairly young in the spectrum of diseases that have been discovered. So there may be a family history of some kind of weakness that didn't carry a diagnosis or was misdiagnosed in prior generations. So you just you want to just not ask about does did your father have muscular dystrophy or your mother, but was has anyone in the family been weak for an unexplained reason? And these things can give you clues as to some of the inherited myopathies. So to summarize, again, there are a lot of causes of myopathy, but big categories that we should be thinking about are inflammatory, um, with dermatomyositis and polymyositis being two common ones that are you can see clinically, but also very testable, uh, drug-induced, uh, infectious, including HIV, systemic diseases, including rheumatologic diseases, and then the large category of inherited and congenital myopathies. And with myopathies, you tend to have 
less of a focal process. You tend to see weakness uh, a bit more diffusely. Um, and then the, the timing, the temporal pattern, and the even the age of onset can help point you in the direction of, of what the specific etiology is. Perfectly said. All right. So that kind of covers the majority of our podcast and its contents. But for those of you out there who are really into the advanced stuff, there are some specialized techniques used by neuromuscular specialists like Dr. Dewey, and this includes NCS, which stands for Nerve Conduction Studies, and EMG, which stands for Electromyographies. So for these special go-getters, Dr. Dewey, do you have any kind of big picture tips on understanding these techniques? Yeah, I do. And I, I think these are really important techniques to understand because they can be extremely helpful. Uh, as diagnostic adjuncts to your history and exam. And that's the first point I want to make is, and this was taught to me by my uh, mentor in EMG and nerve conduction, which was, these are an extension of the physical exam. Uh, And what they will tell you is, what is the function of the nerve and muscle? It's up to you as the neurologist, and and you can have help from the EMGer to interpret what that means in terms of your patient's disease state. But you, you, it's very difficult to get a definitive diagnosis from an EMG, but you can get a very good functional look. And when I say EMG, that's sort of the, the generic term for EMG and nerve conduction study. Uh, that's sort of the term of art. So this probably, if you ever want to go into the weeds, we could probably do a whole podcast on this, but let me give you the very basics. So nerve conduction studies are an electrical test of nerve function. And basically we stimulate either a motor or a sensory nerve in predefined points where they're close to the skin usually. And then we record the function of the nerve either as a impulse passing by a recording electrode in the nerve or the response of the muscle on the other side of the neuromuscular junction. These are all done generally on the surface of the skin with stickers these days. We don't have to use needles for this very often uh, because we're really recording and stimulating on spots that are close to the skin surface. Uh, And any nerve that you can cover with a sticker or hit with electricity, you can test in this way. So it's a very, very uh, diverse and in that way helpful test. And we're really looking at some main parameters. So we're looking at the the response that's passing by the recording electrode uh, as a combined action potential. So it's actually the action potential of many fibers or many muscle fibers being recorded at once and summed. And, And what we're looking for is what is the amplitude or the height of that action potential. And that tells us something about the axon integrity of that nerve. And then how long did it take to get there? So what was the latency from stimulus to response? Or if we, if we stimulate two points, we can measure the conduction velocity of a motor nerve or even with one point in a sensory nerve. And that tells us something about the myelin. So the general rule is amplitude is axon, speed, meaning velocity or latency, is myelin. These can only look at the large nerves. They can't look at the small unmyelinated nerves in the skin. Uh, but they can give you a general idea of the underlying pathology going on. The reason it's helpful is because your clinical exam often cannot tell you whether a neuropathy is axonal or demyelinating. Now, you can guess based on history and uh, some other things, but this is the only definitive way to know outside of biopsying the nerve itself. Uh, You can also do specialized testing that looks at uh, various things, including the neuromuscular junction, where you can stimulate the nerve repeatedly and see if that amplitude decrements over time, which is essentially the same thing as pushing on the muscle and seeing if it gets weaker over time. So it's a good uh, sensitive way to look for neuromuscular junction disorders. The EMG electromyography, sometimes called the needle 
study is where we actually listen to muscles at a more, a more microscopic level. It's not truly microscopic, but we use a very thin needle that acts as a recording electrode in the muscle itself. And so we're looking at muscle fibers within a very small radius of that needle for how they behave both at rest and after excitation through usually voluntary activity. And again, we're looking at, uh, you know, the muscle at rest should be silent. When we hear abnormal activity, which can take one of many forms, that tells us something about a nerve pathology or a muscle pathology. And then when the, when the patient is asked to activate a muscle, the motor, the motor unit action potentials, which are now true muscle fiber action potentials seen individually, uh, have, a, have a shape, a duration, a size, and a pattern of recruitment that we consider normal. And whatever is outside of that norm can point to either a nerve or a muscle disorder. So together, we can get a really good functional look at both the nerve and the muscle through these two tests. And the way we design the test is to localize. So if you have problems in the hand, we wanna test the median nerve, we wanna test the ulnar nerve. If we're worried about a radiculopathy, we wanna test muscles in different myotomes that represent nerve root levels. If we're looking for ALS, we have to test muscles throughout the body. So every test is designed for the clinical question. And that's why I'm so emphatic that it's, it's an extension of the neurologic exam. You don't get an EMG like you get an MRI where it just gives you a look at everything and you're, you're gonna catch what you wanna see. You can only look for on EMG what you know you wanna look for. And that's why a good uh, exam and history are so important to direct this study. Otherwise you'll get a shotgun result that may actually cloud the picture more than help it. So I, I, if, if we get down the road a ways, it'd be fun to talk about these and actually play uh, some recordings and things like that. Uh, but perhaps that's a topic for another day. Also a very good idea for another episode. Yeah. So a quick summary about that point for those of you who are interested in knowing about this technique a little more. So nerve conduction studies, you're really measuring the big motor neuron and other, well, other nerves, the big nerves in the periphery. And mm -hmm. for the most part, the heuristic is that the amplitude tells us something about the axon and latency. And along with that, conduction velocity tells us something about the myelin. And for the EMG, also known as the needle study, we're looking at how muscle fibers get recruited. So we're looking at the amplitude, the duration, and also the pattern of recruitment. Perfectly said. Great. So that just about concludes our discussion of weakness. And again, this is a huge topic. There's so much to discuss and so much that we didn't discuss because we're focusing really on broad strokes here. Um, but I think the key really is that the history and the physical are going to get you so far as you try to figure out what the cause of weakness is, and in particular, paying attention to what you think the anatomical site of the lesion is, and that's where the distribution of the weakness really helps you. Uh, and then as you're thinking about diseases within the specific site, the timing, the temporal pattern of, of weakness will help you to start to distinguish between the different disease entities that we think about uh, within each category. And then finally, we talked about these, uh, these adjuncts, these uh, nerve conduction studies and EMG, which can really help you once you have a, a good sense of where you think the problem is, can help you look further at that nerve and the muscle uh, to see what the actual function um, is at that site. So that just about covers everything. Thanks so much for uh, speaking with us again, Dr. Dewey. Absolutely. I hope this didn't melt anybody's brain. Uh, there is a lot to say for sure, but I think you summarized it perfectly.